If anyone has a question, just raise your hand. Melissa has a question. Come on in, Melissa. Hi. Yes, as as usual, I have a question or two. Um, hi. So, um, so Michael, um, it's it's lovely to be with you again. It's such a privilege to be able to um, to share these questions with you and to find find the answers together. Um, uh, let's see. So I have I have two questions. Um, the first one is uh, a question that uh, well, they're they're both questions that just uh, that just arose uh, spontaneously. Um, uh, and so the first question has to do with the um, when when Ramana uses the um, the I dash I, at least that's the way that I see it written, you know, uh, written in, in, in some of the, um, the, the writings. Um, I don't know whether he actually, uh, did he actually, I don't know what you, what word he used. Um, is it, uh, is it non or is it yar? <laughs> One of those words, I guess, is I, did did he actually write it that way or speak it that way, uh, like non non or yar yar, and and then uh, if, um, uh, what I'm wanting to understand more fully is what exactly is that pointing to? It, my my my. Um, uh, what what I uh, my my own insight about it is that it, that that could be that it is pointing to the one the first eye is the eye that is the 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 infinite the infinite reality that is consciousness being uh, sat chit um, that is really all there is and and in which. Everything that is appearing is appearing within that one infinite reality. And that the second eye is perhaps pointing to what uh, seems to be or appears to be the individuated self that, um, that, uh, that, 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 uh, that 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 appears uh, that that appears to be uh, to be aware of itself, but 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 aware of itself as an individuated being, not not as a separate being necessarily, but but as an individuation of the infinite I. Could you clarify that for me, please? Right. Okay, um, this is unfortunately an, a, a very important part of Bhagavan's teachings, but has been um, the significance of which has been largely overlooked because of a misinterpretation. Um, someone at some point translated what Bhagavan said in Tamil or Sanskrit as I hyphen I and everyone has followed suit without thinking about what actually he meant. Uh, 
the term he used in Tamil is nan nan. In Sanskrit, it is aham aham. But in order to understand what he meant by this, we need to understand the feature uh, of both Tamil and Sanskrit. That it, and this is a feature it shares in common with many languages. In many languages, there's a feature the linguists call it zero copula. That is, if you're saying a sentence like uh, A is B, this is a tree, you just say this tree. You, the is is unnecessary because the fact that you say a sentence without a verb in which you've got a subject and a subject complement, um, the is is implied. So, for example, in Tamil, if you want to say, I am this, you say, uh, nan idu, or I am this body, uh, nan ibudal, or nan iddeham. Uh, the, the nan is I. Uh, Ivudal is this body. So the am is understood there. So, for example, you, you referred to nan ya. Nan means I, ya means who. So if you translate it literally, it's I who. But the am is understood there. I am who is the, is the meaning. When people have translated, for example, nanidu, I am this, they, uh, they've translated it correctly as I am this. Nobody has translated as I this. Nobody has translated Nanya as I who. Why they, someone translated it as I hyphen I, and everyone has been, follow, has been following suit. Um, I hyphen I really has no meaning at all, whereas I am I has a very deep significance. The reason Bhagavan used this term is, as he pointed out, ego is the false adjunct conflated awareness. Uh, I am this, I am this body, I am this person. That is a false identity. We are identifying ourselves with something other than ourselves. But what we actually are is nothing other than ourselves. So who am I? I am I. Bhagavan is pointing to the fact that we are not any we, we are not any adjunct, we are not any any um any uh, phenomenon of any kind whatsoever. All we are is simply that fundamental awareness I am. So I but when he says nan nan in Tamil or aham aham in Sanskrit, it means I am I. Um the context in which he used this term is in, in the context of practice, he referred to uh, the clarity of self-awareness, what he referred to as sporana, the, the clarity of self-awareness, but we, the, the increased degree of clarity or the fresh clarity of self-awareness that we get when we turn our attention within. That is, so long as we're looking outwards, we take for granted I am this body um, because it, it's such a deeply ingrained experience. All our experience of other things are based upon this false awareness, I am this body. Um, but when we turn our attention within, we draw our attention from other things and try to focus on I alone, we 
obviously we don't at first we don't see it with full clarity but we begin to recognize but we are something other than this body what we actually are is just that fundamental awareness i am so in the context of practice he usually used it along with this term sporana um sporana is again a term which unfortunately has been um grossly misinterpreted in many books sporana is a is a sanskrit term but uh, it's a noun derived from the verb spore spore means to to shine or to shine forth but it's used in a very broad uh in a very broad range of contexts so anything that makes itself known is a sporana so for example a palpitation is a sporana Uh, a glittering light is a sporana but that's not obviously when bhagwan talks about the aham sporana the eye sporana he's not talking about any objective experience so it's got nothing to do with palpitation or vibration or um throbbing or so many terms people use which are um which just confuse it all he means by sporana is a fresh clarity of self awareness and he said that fresh clarity shines as i am i so that's in the context of practice so when we are practicing self attentiveness we the more we turn our attention within the more clearly we recognize that i am nothing but i obviously during the stage of practice the false identification i am this body hasn't been completely destroyed um but the more we turn within the more we attend to ourselves the more that false awareness i am this body is dissolved and the clear awareness i am i shines forth um yes, so thank you uh, but he also used this term in the context of the final uh when he he said when he, in in a number of places that is in verse um 20 of upadeshundia verse i think 2 or 3 yeah 2 i think it is of anmabide and verse 30 of uludunapitu he says when i dies that means when ego dies uh one thing shines forth as i am i that is the infinite whole that is the the, the ultimate reality so yes. i am i is the shining forth of our real nature that is our real nature that is what we actually are is always aware of itself as i alone so its experiences i am i yes it, it never experiences itself as i am this or i am that whatever experiences itself as i i am this or i am that is the um is uh, is ego yes yes i yes thank you michael that that was very clear uh that is very clear right uh, before you go into your next question can i oh, say a yes. bit more about oh, this oh please do please. you will often yeah. find in books like talks and so on where the term i i is used which should be i am i in that connection bhagavan often refers to the uh to the old testament to the verse in exodus where god through the burning bush says to reveals to moses his real name i am that i am say that i am has sent you so god god reveals his real name as i am 
that how Bhagavan that is that term I am that I am it's a it's a term that has puzzled people for thousands of years exactly what God meant when he said I, I am that I am my understanding of it is I, I don't know uh, ancient Hebrew but from a little bit I've read about it I what I what I believe to be the correct interpretation of that is I am I am is what I am. In other mm -hmm. words, yes. uh, so it, in that sense, Bhagavan took it. So Bhagavan basically took I am that I am to mean I am I. So that's why he often referred to that. And Bhagavan said something which um, uh, many people will be, uh, many um, Vedantins will be uh, uh, horrified at. Bhagavan said, the greatest of all the Mahavakyas is not any of Mahavakyas in the Vedas, it is mm -hmm. the Mahavakya in the Bible. I am that yeah. I am. Yes. And there is a reason why Bhagavan said that. That is, the Mahavakyas in the Vedas, they, uh, what they all share in common, they're all pointing out what is our real identity. You are that, Tatvamasi. That yes. referring to Brahman, or Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman, or yes. um, uh, I am or, Atma Brahman. This very self is yes. Brahman. Yes, or, or Atman is Brahman. Yes, Atman is yes. Brahman. Yeah, yes. that is that means Atman is not some other thing. Atman is we yes. ourselves. We ourselves are Brahman, yes. and the other one is Pragnanam Brahman. Pure awareness, that's referring to be a fundamental awareness I am by implication. Yes. That awareness I am, that is Brahman. Yes. There's a good reason for that. Because our minds are going outwards, we're seeking for Brahman or God or happiness or knowledge or whatever we're seeking for, we are seeking it outside ourselves. That is the natural inclination of the mind to seek for things outside ourselves. So we can never know God or Brahman or happiness or true knowledge so long as we're looking outwards because it doesn't exist outside. It is, we are that. So yes. the aim of the Mahavakyas, as Bhagavan pointed out, in verse 32 of Uludunapati, he says, when the Vedas proclaim you are that, what this is not his exact words, I'm slightly paraphrasing it just to make the meaning clear. What should be our response? We should, oh, if I am that, then what am I? So we should investigate what am I and thereby know and be what we actually are. Instead of that, thinking I am not this body, I am that is just weak, is due to weakness of mind because that always exists as oneself. So, um, the why Bhagavan said the what is said in the Bible is the greatest of the Mahavakyas. Though the reason for the Mahavakyas in the Vedas, it's very clear, it's trying to turn our attention, our outward going seeking, to be become an inward going seeking. That is, it if that if Brahman is I, then I can forget about Brahman. I, I no longer need to think about Brahman because as soon as you say the word Brahman. It suggests something other than I. If Brahman is I, <laughs> then all I need to think about is I. So if yes. Brahman is I, what is the real significance of the saying, uh, I am Brahman? It means yes. I am I. 
because Brahman is not anything other than I. Yes. So, in, in the, so long as you think I am Brahman, your attention is, be, is being divided between yourself and some idea of what you are. Brahman, something very big, some very influential. Right, right. Is. Yes. That is, until we know ourselves, we cannot know Brahman. So as soon yes. as we say the word Brahman, we, it, we have some idea, some concept of what is Brahman. So yes. we, if we are thinking, I am Brahman, we are identifying ourselves with a certain idea. That right. is not, that's why Bhagavan says thinking I am Brahman is due to weakness of mind. That is, it's very important to understand I am Brahman, but if we understand I am Brahman, then what should we think about? We should think only about I. Yes, yes, I, I, I think I see, uh, or I, I know I can see uh, exactly what you were pointing yes. to. Um, in, in fact, I was just watching something yesterday, um, mm. uh, a film, but mm. um, it, it, it pointed something out that was interesting about how um, in, in um, you know, in the evolution of this uh, human mind-body apparatus that, um, uh, you know, uh, some thousands of years ago, whatever that means, um, that the ability to conceptualize began to arise, the ability to, uh, to, um, to form concepts, uh, you know, uh, which was the beginning of mind, uh, that, that, that mind had a beginning, you know, an, an evolutionary beginning, um, which is, it points to it not being real, not being eternal. It's not the, it's not the eternal truth. It has a beginning. It has, therefore, it has an end. Um, but that mind uh you know uh, begins when we when we when we form concepts and and then uh, then it, it's it's a it's a mysterious process but that then everything becomes everything is a um is a projection a projection of our concepts uh and and <clears throat> And the you know the infinite uh, uh, begins becomes more and more constricted to uh, to being an outpicturing of our of, of concepts of of mind, um, and 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 so I uh, so I can see where even a concept like Brahman or a concept like Atman or you know these these apparently lofty God you know uh, yeah. these apparently lofty concepts they are still concepts they are still uh, they are um, appearing in the mind. And, and 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 that that brings up another part of the same question. Um, uh, I've heard uh, other an, another another important teacher uh, point out that there are there are just a few uh, quote unquote words that that are that refer directly to that refer beyond the mind. And there are only a few such words that we have. I is one of those words 
that that literally takes us it 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 takes us out of the mind. It takes us out of we're out of our mind mm-hmm. when we say the word I. Also, the word uh, I mean, if we're really attending to it, the word uh, awareness or consciousness, the word being, um, maybe the word presence. Uh, but but that it, it refers us directly back to what we really are, what really is. But there are but there are very very few such words, and and mm-hmm. and only they only work if we really see what they are pointing to, mm-hmm. and, and let them take us beyond the mind. Yes, yes, that is words like being and awareness. They are referring to ourselves. Yes. But they're, ref- they're indirect ways of referring to ourselves because we've got a certain idea of what is awareness, ah, what is being. Yes, but yes. the only two words, but, but Bhagavan has said the natural name of ourself, there are two words that serve as the natural name of ourself. One is I and one is am. Yes, yes. In many languages, including Tamil and Sanskrit, you don't actually have to say I am. If you say simply am, the I is understood there. Mm. Uh, that's the same in, in Latin, for example. Uh, um, <coughs> uh, Descartes said uh, cogito ergo sum. He did not say yes. ego cogito Ergo, ego, sum. The I is unnecessary because it's contained there in the verb. Yes. When Julius Caesar supposedly said, Veni, vidi, vici, I came, I saw, I conquered. He actually said, he said, came, saw, conquered. Right, yes. Because Uh, the I is understood in the form of a verb. Because in English, we don't conjugate verbs to the same extent but in, in most languages do. We, in English, the pronoun is necessary. But so yes. in, in, in Bhagavan said, but the natural name of ourself and the natural name of God is I or I, am, or yeah, I am, yes. <laughs> whichever yeah. one. Yes, because thank you. When you I talk about that. awareness, for example, it, nowadays, Right. So many philosophers and scientists are trying to yeah. investigate awareness, but they're right. never talking about I. They're always talking about awareness. <laughs> right. as if it's some, they say yep. awareness is a very complex complex phenomenon. I've seen that said so many times by yeah. neuroscientists, yeah. and right. their understanding is complex. There's nothing simpler than awareness. What is awareness? Yes. I am awareness. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. That was that really further clarified for me that yes that even those those words that that if we're really paying attention we let them point to what they really are pointing to but yeah. it can be it can be tricky and yeah. and we can we can uh, kind of we can we can kind of miss the mark so to speak yes. but the word but i and am yeah. are are they are uh, you you they go they directly cannot refer to anything other than ourselves exactly Yes, yes, we do refer to this body and this mind as if they're I. But if we think a little bit about it, what they're essentially yeah. referring to is yes. our own being, our own awareness. It's it, to so, ourselves. Yes, yes. Well, well. Um, uh, another way that I that I uh, get there, uh, you know, I I, I think, um, uh, like if you were to ask the question, 
are you aware? Mm. If I ask myself the question, are, am I aware? I, 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 I then I watch where I go to yes. when I, yes, when I follow that question, where do I go to? And yeah. I, mm-hmm. and I, and I realize it brings me yeah. right, right to, to I. And do you brings- see, that is the word, but if we follow it correctly, it pierces through the mind, yes, back to the underlying reality. Because yes. I is the name of the underlying reality. So one yes. more thing I was explaining why Bhagavan said what is said in the Bible, that's the greatest of the Mahavakyas, because in the, that is, as I say, he, what he took that saying in the Bible to mean is simply I am I. So yes. in the statement I am I, you have no two things. You've only got one thing. Yes. I. So yes. that's why you said that's the greatest of the Mahavakyas. Yes. Well, and, and when you when you when you uh, even just say the word "I," um, that implies that has to imply the yes. word "am," because yes. you cannot it yes. cannot you cannot have "I" because, if it is not being. Yeah. yeah exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes, it's it's amazing. It's really yeah. quite, it's yeah. quite, it's quite mind blowing. It, it, <laughs> it is. It is. It is. It's it's truly wonderful. Um, so yes, thank you, thank you so much um, yeah. for for that question. And then this second question is, um, it it kind of is is kind of a little more of the, it's the same, but it's a, a maybe um, a, a, a tiny bit. Uh, it, it draws another distinction. Um, in our reading last week, uh, in our group reading last week, we uh, we came upon uh, it, it. I guess it was in Appendix Three, either Appendix Two or Appendix Three of the Path of Sri Ramana, um, uh, and in which is referring to the first person, second person, and third person. Yes. And uh, so. Um, my my understanding of first person is that really that is really all there is. It's the I that yes. is the you know the infinite re- reality, yeah. um, and and the apparent second person, what what what's, what appears as second person is the 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 I that is mixed with the identification with the body, the the. Um, the, the mind, really, uh, what we might call the subtle form, uh, and then the third person would be what appear to be other persons, what what appear to be other uh, other awarenesses, uh, which. Uh, Oh, wait, wait, let me back up. So the second person is the is the is the mind identified with the body, uh, uh, which another way of saying it is subtle form mixed with gross form, and and when when subtle form mixes with gross form, then then it it it, it appears to become limited. And 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 then the third person, which appear to be other minds, you know, other awarenesses, other minds, and we we seem to not be able to know 
other minds. I can't know what's in your, quote unquote, in your mind right now. Uh, even though in reality, we are the one, you know, the one in, in, in infinite consciousness. But it seems like I can't know your mind because when I, uh, when I'm identified as the second person, then I can't know what's in the third person, uh, the seemingly other other minds, because the 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 identification of the of the subtle form with the gross form means that then I can't know another subtle form. It's a, <laughs> that's a little it's a little hard oh, to explain. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Again, here I'll, I'll this requires some clarification. Please. First person, second person, third person, these are grammatical terms. Um, it's not actually talking about persons. The first person is I, second person is you in, in grammar. The Bhagavan's using it in sight, didn't say. Third person is he, she, or it, or they. So it, 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 it's not necessarily um, the PC in front of me is a third person, because I say it. Or if I'm okay. talking to a PC, it's a second person, because you. Um, ah. I do seemingly talking to a, a PC, but I know I'm not actually talking to a PC. I'm talking to those who are on the other side of it, so to speak, your, yourself, namely. Um, so you are the second person when I'm talking to you. When you are talking to me, you are the first person, I am the second person. But Bhagavan is using these terms, he's not using them as in a grammatical sense. The, the grammatical terms are, um, are metaphors. Um, some places I've seen it translated, people translated the first person pronoun, second person pronoun, third person pronoun. No, Bhagavan is not talking about pronouns because pronouns belong to grammar. In many languages like English, we refer to these three as the three persons. In Sanskrit also, they refer to them as the three persons. But in Tamil, they don't refer to them as the three persons, they refer to them as the three places. And also in Tamil, they don't use the terms first, second, third. The, um, the terms in Tamil are tanmay, for the first person is tanmay, that means selfness. Munile, second person, literally means what stands in front. And padake is what is spread out. So we, 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 need, to, we, we need to get beyond the idea that Bhagavan is talking about persons. What he means by first person, second person, third person, the simplest way of saying it is first person is the subject, second and third persons are objects. And the first person, the subject, is ego. That which is aware of itself as I am this body. So in, he uses these terms in a number of places. For example, in the, in the fifth paragraph of Nana, he says, um, of all the thoughts that rise in the mind, uh, the thought called I alone is the first thought. What he means by the thought called I is ego. And ah. he says, only after this rises, uh, do other thoughts rise? Uh -huh. And then he says in the next sentence, only after the first person rises do the second and third persons rise. So the uh -huh. first person is ego, the thought called I. 
second and third persons are all other thoughts, all other, all, in other words, all objects or phenomena are second yes. or third person. If we want to understand that it, we generally, second and third persons are clubbed together. We need not analyze what is second or third person, but if we want to analyze, in, in the light of the, the meaning of the, the etymological meaning of the Tamil terms, the second person is what in Tamil it's called munile, what what stands in front, whereas the third person is what is called padake, what spreads out. So, we, if we want to explain this, what is immediately presented to our awareness. That is the the if we're seeing the world, right? the, the mm. objects we are seeing are the second person. The objects we think about that are at a distance of a third person. Ah. Or or um uh <clears throat> when I if I if I think of um if I think of a uh a term, say I think of the thought apple. The thought apple is the second person. The object that that thought is referring to is the third person. It's something oh. further away. So if we want to analyze it, we can analyze it in that way. But that's really not necessary because all the objects are phenomena. So Bhagavan simply used this, uh, these terms, first person, second person, third person. Um, to me, the first person is the subject. But knower of all everything I else. See. The second yeah. and third person is the object. And in, as I say, w w one place where he used this term is in the fifth paragraph of Nana. Oh, I didn't say the last sentence. After saying, uh, only after the first person rises to the second and third person's rise. Okay. And then he says in the next sentence, if the first person doesn't exist, second and third person do not exist. Got it. Ah, he says a similar thing in a slightly different way in verse 14 of Uludunapadu. He says, if the first person exists, second and third persons ex will exist. Yes. Okay. If oneself investigating the reality of a first person, the first person ceases to exist. That implies if, if yes. by oneself investigating the reality of a first person, the first person ceases to exist, second and third persons uh, will also cease to exist. And what then shines, the nature that then shines, alone is oneself. Um, in Bhagavan, uh, when he first wrote Uludunapadu, he wrote about it as separate verses called Vembas. Vembas a particular meter in Tamil. It's the uh, the Vembas. All, all each verse of Uludunapadu is a four line Vemba. But he later, to make it easier for people to remember the the sequence of verses, he converted those uh, those forty two Vembas into one Kali Vemba. He, he how he converted it is the bember has it has four feet in each of the first three lines and in the third um line it's just got two and a half feet so by lengthening the third line adding an extra one and a half feet it it uh it it connects it to the next verse so the word he added when he uh before this verse was Udul nan ennum, at 
That means he's, he, the first word of a verse is tanmai, which means first person. He, des, he describes what is that first person, urunan ennam, that first person which is called I am this body. So he's clearly referring to what he means by tanmai, the first person, is ego. I see that that cuts right through yeah. uh, you know, my my the previous confusion that so then so really it, it, in 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 the infinite reality there is no first second or third person no exactly the, exactly yeah. Yes. What then remains, yeah. that is our true yes. state, which is, yes. and he says, Andrei Olirum, that which remains and shines as one. By yes. saying shines as one, it implies one without a second. Yes. Thank you so much, Michael. Yes. That, was, that was so clarifying. Really right. appreciate right. it. Right. And one, interest, okay. one interesting thing, Bhagavan used these terms. I mean, Bhagavan was using, even in... In Nana, which is a work which answer that he gave to Shiva Prakash and Palai back in about the year 1901-1902. As far as I'm aware, in in Western philosophy, uh, in older in older books of Western philosophy, they talk about subject and object. They generally don't talk about first person, second person. Third person, but in right. recent years in philosophy, in Western philosophy, they've begun to talk about the first person. <laughs> they generally talk about first person and third person. So third person is all other thing. First person is is I. But um, they're not talking about it in nearly as deep a way as Bhagavan. Right. But it's interesting. Yeah. But Bhagavan, this term, which is these terms, which have now become so popular in modern philosophy, were actually coined by Bhagavan, uh, were, were used by Bhagavan in this sense, in a much deeper sense, actually, um, yeah. even before these uh, this uh, Western philosophy began to adopt these terms. I'm not saying they got it from Bhagavan, but, but it's just interesting. But in the same century, in which you, the beginning of the century, Bhagavan used these terms. By the end of that century, uh, the, mm. the Western philosophers are using it. You yes. can call it a coincidence, but it's just a, a, an interesting point. Oh, oh, it's not. I don't think it's a coincidence no, at all. I, 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 I don't think. Yes. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Michael. Right. right. Very much appreciate. Okay. Um, I see, Vish, um, you have your hand raised. But before I answer your question, can I just say one other thing? Because uh, there was something I wanted to say, which is, uh, indirectly related to what we've just been talking about, because I mentioned Sporana. That is, um, been a few weeks ago, you shared, um, you shared uh, uh, a screenshot. It seems to be, I assume it's from a, from a, um, you, you, you took the screenshot from a, um, probably a, a what's it called? Um, uh, 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 not WhatsApp, um, Facebook page, it's probably, it seems to be a Facebook page group called Morris Friedman. And it, a, a portion has been quoted from a book called Conscious Immortality, which is something that, um, that uh, was recorded by um, Paul Brunton. Um, 
So Paul Brunton obviously didn't know Tamil. So this is whatever he recorded is what he understood of what someone else had translated for him. And what that person translated would have been what they understood. But since you shared this, this is a very... It's actually it's very confusing. This is confu This particular passage is confusing Bhagavan's teachings a lot. I'll just read what what is written there. That is, um, a devotee who asked for Maharshi's grace was told, "You have it." He experienced a throb in the center of his chest, like a slight pressure, and felt happy and extraordinarily peaceful. He asked the Maharshi about it later. And then it, Bhagavan is quoted as if he said, but I don't think this is actually what Bhagavan meant. I think this is a, somewhere along the line, either the translator didn't understand it correctly, or he didn't translate it well, or Paul Brunton understood it, misunderstood. But anyway, how it's come through, as if Bhagavan said, hold on to that sensation firmly whenever the mind is distracted. Your mantra saying is no longer necessary. It is called Sporana. That's implying that that sensation is called Sporana and is felt on several occasions, such as fear and excitement. It is really always there at the heart center. It is associated with antecedent causes and usually confused with the body. It, it is alone and pure. It is the self. If the mind is fixed on it, sensing it continuously and automatically, it is realization. Now it is a foretaste of realization. That is, there's a, a lot of things seem to have been confused here. Firstly, what as as I explained earlier when I was replying to Melissa, um, in connection with uh, I I am I, uh, Bhagavan often referred to the clear awareness. I am I as Sparana. What he meant by Sparana is not any kind of throb in the center of the chest. It is, it is a clarity of self-awareness. But this is here being confused with something else. Um, that is, sometimes if, for example, if you're walking along a street and suddenly a car behind you honks its horn, or if you hear an explosion or something and you get a shock, or any circumstance in which you get a shock, if you observe, the place where the shock seems to come from is two digits to the right from the center of the chest. Because as Bhagavan pointed out, with relation to the body, that is where the, the eyeness seems to be centered in this body. When we, when we say, um, when we refer to ourselves. The place in the body we, we point to is always to our chest. If someone asks, um, who, who knows the answer to this, um, to this um, a problem in mass? If you say, I do, you don't point your head and say, I do. Um, or if someone asks, um, who just came walking from the, the nearby shop? You don't point at your feet and say, I do. In both cases, you point at your chest because... Um, that is where, though, when we are aware of ourselves as I and his body, we're aware of the whole body as ourself. So the awareness I is, so to speak, spread throughout the body, or the, the false awareness I and his body is spread throughout the body, to put it more precisely. So if, if someone touches your hand, you feel they've touched you. But though the I is 
seems to be spread throughout the body, the, the, the center of eye in the body is two digits to the right from the center of the chest. Bhagavan pointed this out, but actually he also pointed out this has no spiritual significance. He pointed this out for those who were much interested in yoga, which is very body-based. Some of them, when Bhagavan spoke about the heart, he asked, they asked him, where in the body is this heart? Is it the same as the Anahacha chakra, the, the heart chakra? Or is it some other thing? Bhagavan said, no, it's not the Anahacha chakra. It's not. Heart means the reality. Heart means I. Heart, you yourself are the heart. But they still, some people whose minds are very outward going, they persist in asking them, where in the body is it? So he said, in relation to the body, two digits to the right from the center of the chest. That is not actually the center of, uh, of our real nature, because our real nature is obviously infinite and uh, unlimited. That is the place where ego is centered in the body. So with relation to the body, when 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 ego rises and it, it spreads throughout the body, but the in relation to a body, the place where it begins to spread from is from that point. But that doesn't mean that the ego originates from here, because obviously, the, uh, as Bhagavan said, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. So body is secondary to ego. And that what I was referring to earlier um, when Bhagavan said, only after the first, uh, only after the thought called I appears, do other thoughts appear? Only after the first person appears, do second and third persons appear? So ego is what comes first. But in, as soon as ego rises, it projects a body and identifies it as I. That process of projecting and identifying a body as I, is in relation to the body, it's it's from that point. So we, we this is this is something that. People miss. I mean, it's something that people. If you if you've got a gross outward looking mind, it's very easy to misunderstand what Bhagavan was saying in this regard. So many people understood this. So uh, the the throb in the center of the chest. Sometimes, if you're very sad, or if you're very uh, overjoyed, or as I say, in the case of a shock, a sudden explosion, or a loud noise, or something, or if you're suddenly in danger. If you suddenly see someone coming towards you threateningly with a knife or something when you're walking down the street, you'll feel a shock. You're you're uh, you go into the what is it fight or flight mode type of uh, where adrenaline surges through the body. But at that time, we feel a sensation in the in the center, two digits right from the center of the chest. If we observe it. But that has no spiritual significance because the body is an object. Any sensation in the body is also an object. So that shouldn't be com confused with Sparana. What has happened here is Bhagavan was probably explaining one thing and then went on to explain another thing, a deeper thing. And the two got someone, either the, either the person who translated for Paul Brunton or Paul Brunton conflated the two and confused the matter. So when Bhagavan talks about Sparana, he doesn't mean a throb in the center of the chest. 
yes, sometimes we do feel a throb in the center of the chest when in times of shock and so on, but that is not what is meant by sporana. Sporana, what he, when Bhagavan talks about sporana, he's talking about the clarity of self-awareness. Aham sporana means the, the clear shining of eye. And it is we experience it as, whereas now we experience ourselves as I am this body, the deeper we go within, the more clearly we are aware of ourselves as I am I. I am not this body, I am just I. We don't even think I am not this body. We, we are aware of ourselves just as I, as nothing other than I. So the reason I pointed this out is, like this, there are many, many places you can find in books where the people who've recorded things or the translators failed to... Bhagavan, what Bhagavan is talking about is often something very deep and very subtle. So if we don't have a deep and subtle understanding, we are liable to interpret it wrongly. So the, what is recorded here, um, because, ben, you, because you shared it, I thought it's worth pointing out, this is a confusion here. But different things are being talked about and have been conflated together. The, the throb we feel in the center of the chest... This devotee, he asked for Bhagavan's grace. And Bhagavan say, said some assuring words like, you have it. Naturally, he feels great excitement. So he, but whenever we are in a state of excitement, we, we feel a, a, a sensation in the, center, in the center, two digits to right from the center of the chest. But that is not Sparana. That is an object. So Bhagavan never asked us to hold on to that sensation. What Bhagavan asked us to hold on to is I. And when he's talking about sparana, he said, hold on to the sparana, because the sparana is the clarity of awareness, of I awareness, or the awareness of ourself as ourself alone. That is what we need to hold on to. He's not talking about holding on to a, a physical sensation. So I, I hope that uh, clarification is necessary. Uh, sorry, I, mean, I hope it's useful, because this is something that this type of confusion occurs in many books, so we need to be very, very discriminating when we read these books. Uh, I'm glad you raised that difference because um, in Indian languages, the way we use Purana is supposing someone has gone under anesthesia yes. or become unconscious, Yes. And then becomes conscious again, then we use the words Purana or Chindi, or he, yes. he got back his consciousness. Yes, yes, yes. So I'm glad you brought I, that. As, as I pointed out last time, because you know a little bit of Tamil, in Tamil we use the, the, the Tamil verb Puri, which means to, to understand, it actually means to be clear. So if you want to say in Tamil, um, do you understand? Oh, you, you say, is it clear to you? Uh, and if you want to say, yes, it's clear to me, it's clear to me, or simply you just say, it's clear. So that's how you say it's understood in Tamil. But that's the same word. Uh, I mean, it's, a, it's a, a Tamil form of the Sanskrit verb, spore, which means to be clear. So <laughs> when you recover your uh, your consciousness after, uh, or you recover the body consciousness, let's say, to be precise, after an operation, it is a, it's a, you get a, it's a, um, it's a, a fresh a clarity you get at that time. 
So that is the sense in which Bhagavan you but you can also use the word sparana if you've got a uh, if your heart is beating, if you're very uh, if you've had a shock and your heart's still beating, you can call that a type of sparana, but that's that's not the sparana Bhagavan is talking about. Bhagavan is not talking about an objective sparana, he often referred to it as the aham sparana, or in Tamil the nanenam spuripu. The, the, the clarity called I. So he's not talking about anything objective. But many people who lack subtle understanding, they confuse these things. That is the same word in all languages. There are words which can be mean different things in different contexts. So sparana is used for uh, to mean palpitation or throbbing or glittering or, or so on. That's not the, what Bhagavan is referring to because these are all objective. Bhagavan is referring to the, <coughs> the, the clarity of self-awareness, the clarity of I. Okay, can we get to Vin's question, Vish's yes, question yes, now? Yes, certainly. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, so uh, one question I have is, uh, I was under the assumption that on the day, uh, at the age of 16, uh, I mean, it's all in the books that uh, Bhagavan Ramana Maharishi uh, was uh, lying on the ground and uh, pretending to be dead as if uh, rigor mortis uh, sets in. And then he was, uh, he was kind of thinking about the question of who am I and all that, right? So in a way, it is, uh, it is kind of... Uh, it is kind of self-inquiry, right? And then he was actually able to uh, have this eye, eye kind of uh, dissolved and all that, right? Yeah. But then in uh, one of the podcasts, you had mentioned that it was the grace which uh, allowed him to to kind of uh, uh, to be in that position, like to, to contemplate that and so on, right? So I just want to understand... The importance of the importance of uh, grace uh, to me it appears arbitrary because you can have an aspirant uh, uh, continue to do jnana uh, yoga or self inquiry or karma yoga for uh, generations or for multiple uh, lifetimes, but then on the other side you have the grace which kind of uh, decides on its own as to when the aspirant has achieved a sufficient kind of a level in dropping the ego and so on. So the question I have is, is uh, grace arbitrary, number one. And uh, number two is, for an average aspirant, uh, tell me what can they do uh, to be receptive of the grace or to be uh, worthy of getting the grace? Okay, very, very good question. Um, Firstly, since you began by referring to Bhagavan's death experience, um, this again is something that the way Bhagavan expressed it in Tamil is very, very subtle. I, I think from your name, I assume you know Tamil. So yes. in, Tam in Tamil, we're, we're able to say things in a very impersonal way. That is, often you can... You, you can form sentences without, um, in English, if you want to form a sentence, 
without specifying the agent, you, we usually have to use the passive voice. Whereas in, uh, very occasionally in English, we, we use what is called the middle voice. I'll just give an example. You can say, um, uh, the lady is cooking the rice. That is active voice. That is active. You've got the agent is the lady. Uh, the, the verb is in active form and the rice is, the, is what is being cooked, the object. If you, if you, you can also say the rice is being cooked by the lady. So there the rice is the subject, but the agent is the lady. So it's in passive voice. And when we say the passive, you can mention the agent or you can omit the agent. You can either say the rice is being cooked by the lady or the rice is being cooked. So then you've dropped the agent. But there's another way of dropping the agent, which is called the middle. That is passive, what I've talked about. The other one is middle voice. In English, you can also say the rice is cooking. That is neither active, but the, the rice is not the agent. Rice is what is being cooked. But we say the rice is cooking. That is what is called middle voice. In Tamil, the middle voice is used very, very widely. And, and you can do it, you can use the middle voice. In, in English, you can do it only with certain verbs. You, you can't say it, for example, kicking. The boy kicked the ball. The ball was kicked by the boy. Um, the, the ball was kicked. You can say that much, but you can't say the ball kicked. It doesn't make sense in English. But in Tamil, the, most verbs can be used in the middle voice. So that enables Bhagavan to talk about things like that death experience. He talked about it without actually referring to I. The only context in which he referred to I was that he was investigating I, and I shone forth on its own. So, But he wasn't saying, I investigate myself, I turn my attention with it. He didn't even say... Uh, um, he said that he, he, the way he expressed it, I'll try and it's very difficult to express it adequately in English, the way it's expressed in Tamil, but it was the fear of death uh, came, and but he did it without saying I. So when the fear of death came, his immediate response was, though he described it in words, he also said afterwards, but though he described it in words, it, it wasn't a, a thought process. It happened in a flash. That is, it was immediate uh, response when this fear of death came was to, was to uh, lie down, turn within, and investigate with the death of his body, do I also die? That is what, so it was actually, it wasn't just a sort of self-investigation, it was actual self-investigation, but he wasn't asking any question, though he, in order to explain it to others, he had to put it in words as if it was a, a process of questioning, but he made it clear, but it was actually, it was an investigation. He turned his attention within, so be, and he didn't, he he didn't pretend that the body was dead. He wasn't acting as if the body was dead. He, he was, he was, um, he was stu studying. He was supposed to be studying his books. The fear of death came. He immediately laid down, and his mind went in. In other places, like in um, 
in Vichara Sangraham, he says, leaving the body as a corpse, investigating what is it that now shines as I. When he says leaving the corpse-like body as a corpse, he's referring to his actual experience. Also in Uludunapdu, verse 29, in the Kalivemba version, he says uh, something, Pinnampo, uh, leaving the body like a corpse with the mind going within. So that is what Bhagavan actually did. He actually, his attention turned within and he left the body as a corpse. Not only that, Bhagavan also clarified the body actually died. For 20 minutes, the body was lying there lifeless. So it wasn't just acting, but his attention went in so keenly, but the whole prana, the whole, everything stopped. Um, so it, the, the, the way it's expressed in English books is makes it sound like he enacted it, but he thought all these things. No, it wasn't so. It was um, it was a direct, spontaneous, instantaneous self investigation, and because he was so mature, he was swallowed. What swallowed him? That is the clarity of self awareness, which is otherwise called grace. So that now we come to what your question is actually about, about the grace. Grace is equal for everyone. Bhagavan has said, grace is what is shining in our heart as I. Grace is the very nature of God. Grace is the very nature of Guru. Grace and God are not two different things. God is Shiva. Grace is Shakti, the power. It, our God and his power are two different things. Are Shiva and Shakti two things? No, they are one as symbolized in the, in the form of Adhanarishwara. So, but, uh, though in iconography often Shiva and Shakti are shown as if they're two, the deeper understanding is that Shiva is Shakti, Shakti is Shiva. They are one and inseparable because God and his power are not two different things. God and his grace are not two different things. So, grace is the very nature of Guru. Grace is the very nature of God. Grace is our own very nature. Our, our real nature is grace. What is grace? Grace is, we talk about Bhagavan's grace. What is Bhagavan's grace? Grace is the infinite love that Bhagavan has for us as himself. Because in, in our view, we are separate from Bhagavan. Bhagavan is separate from us. But he doesn't see us as separate from him. He, he is that um, he 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 alone exists. So in his view, he doesn't see anything as other than himself. So he, in his experience, we are nothing other than himself. Because he sees us as as not other than himself, he loves us as not other than himself. So his love for us is infinite, and it's unconditional. It's not affected by anything. His 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 love for the worst sinner. And the greatest saint is exactly equal. There is no partiality whatsoever. So grace is ever available. In this context, there's a nice analogy that Ramakrishna Paramahamsa gave. He said, but grace is like the pouring monsoon rain. It's pouring down unceasingly. But if it, when it lands on a mound, it runs off the mound. If it lands in a low-lying place, in a depression, in a in a in a, a pit, in a low-lying in in a low-lying piece of land, 
it gathers there. And it gathers, it fills up that pit and it overflows. So it completely, it completely engulfs that pit. Likewise with grace. If we have a very strong ego, the grace will pour all over us because we like that we've risen high like that mound. If we are very humble, very subsided, grace will accumulate there and will swallow us. So that grace is never partial. And grace is from the very moment we rise as ego, grace begins to do its work. So through we've had crores and crores of gemmas. Throughout all those crores of gemmas, grace has been ever shining in our heart as I, ever doing its work of slowly, slowly bringing us, drawing us back to itself. So how do we make ourselves more receptive to grace? We have to yield ourselves to grace. By rising as ego, we are obstructing the work of grace. So the surrender is the way to, uh, to, um, to open our heart to grace, to, to cease obstructing grace. So the more we, and how can we surrender ourselves? We can surrender ourselves most effectively and deeply only by clinging on to self-attentiveness. The more we cling to self-attentiveness, the more ego subsides. The more ego subsides, the freer grace is to do its work. But does that mean there are two things there? There's grace and our effort. No, even that is not true. Whatever effort we make, that is entirely by grace. Because the very nature of the mind is to, go, is to always be going outwards towards things other than itself. So when we begin to get a liking to go within, when we are attracted to Bhagavan's path and we begin to get a liking to go within, we may not be very successful in our attempt to go within, but at least we try to turn our attention back towards ourselves. That is in that that liking to turn within is is that the seed of that liking was sown in our heart by grace. That's why Bhagavan often used to say, grace is the beginning, the middle, and the end. Because it is grace that draws us to this path. It is grace that leads us and guides us along this path and gives us the strength to follow this path. And eventually, it is grace that will swallow us. So everything is grace. So does that mean then that our effort is not necessary? No, it doesn't mean that. Our effort is definitely necessary. Why? Because grace is not something coming from outside. Though Ramakrishna Paramahamsa used the analogy of, of uh, the monsoon rain, grace isn't, uh, that, that's a very good analogy he uses, but we shouldn't take analogies too far. Grace is not coming from God up in heaven. Grace is ever there in our heart. Grace works through us. So we have to cooperate with grace. So effort is necessary on our part. That is why in the 12th paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan says, Kadavalam guruvum unmail verala. God and Guru are in truth not different. Puli vayil patadu evvaru tirumbadado. Just as what has been caught in the jaws of a tiger will not return, that means will not escape. Avare guruvin aral pavail patabagal avaral rakshika padavare andri. Orukalum Kaivira Pada. 
this is such a great assurance Bhagavan has given us. Just like what has been caught in the jaws of a tiger will, will not escape, so those who have been caught in the look of the Guru's grace will never be forsaken, but will surely be saved by him. So Bhagavan gives us a great assurance there. And being caught by the look of the Guru's grace, he's not just talking about the physical look of Bhagavan's eyes. The very fact that we've been drawn to Bhagavan's path means we've been caught in the look of Guru's grace. But after giving us this great assurance, he adds one more thing. He says, Eninum, nevertheless, Guru Katya Varipadi Tavaradu Nadakavendum. Uh, nevertheless, it is necessary to follow without fail the path shown by Guru. So Guru, grace will do everything, but we need to cooperate with it. We need to yield ourselves to grace. Otherwise, if we continue rising as ego, enthusiastically jumping outside and running after things in the world, we are obstructing his work because he's trying to pull us back within. If we're running outside, we we make it we we are uh, uh, and he's not going to force us. He he will never kill us until we are willing to surrender ourselves completely. So we must play our part. How do we play our part by surrendering ourselves completely to him? And how do we surrender ourselves completely to him? In the very next sentence, the first sentence of the thirteenth paragraph, he explains what is true surrender. Being param, that means one who is firmly fixed as oneself, not even give, giving not even the slightest room to the rising of any thought except self-attentiveness, alone is giving oneself to God. So we need to be so keenly self-attentive that we thereby give no room to the rising of any other thought. Thereby we remain param. that is, one who is established as oneself, as one's real nature, it implies, that alone is giving ourselves to God. So, is effort necessary? Yes, 100% it's necessary. Is grace necessary? Yes, 100% necessary. Can there be effort without grace? No, not at all. Can we leave everything to grace, expect grace will do everything for us? Yes, provided we surrender ourselves to it. If we say, oh, grace will do everything so I can continue um, my, living my worldly life, seeking all the worldly pleasures, we are fooling ourselves. We have to cooperate with grace by surrendering ourselves to grace. Is that an adequate answer to your question? Yes, yes, Michael. Thank you so much. Yeah, right. that was awesome. So in Bhagavan's path, grace is absolutely necessary. Effort is absolutely necessary. Thank you. Are there any more questions? I think Lindsay has said she's raised a question, hand or something. Yeah, I have a question. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. Um, sometimes it seems like I am forcing self-inquiry at my practices are silence and actual physical stillness because I have noticed in the past that I can be tempted to take actions that aren't really coming from a deep enough urge. So they're, I, so those are my two practices. And 
in my silence, I try and focus on self-inquiry, but I do seem to get to a point where I'm forcing it. And at that point, I get a little lost and I'm wondering how exactly would I keep my attention focused inwardly and surrender if I need to take a break from self-inquiry? Do you know what I mean? If, if, if you feel you need to take a break, take a break. That is, but the nature of the mind is to be constantly going outwards. So um, in practice, however much we try to hold on to self-attentiveness, our attention is going, it keeps on going outwards. We have to bring it back again. We have to bring it back again. Sometimes we may get tired of this. Allow the mind to go outwards. But when you allow the mind to go outwards, keep it dwelling on Bhagavan's teachings because Bhagavan's teachings will, will encourage you to turn back within. Keeping the mind dwelling on Bhagavan's teachings means reading his teachings or listening to his teachings. That's fine. But you can also, you don't have to have a book at hand. You can, we could, we, we've studied Bhagavan's teachings. We know, but we think about it, constantly thinking about it. Why Bhagavan told us we need to be constantly turning back within. When we do, when we think deeply about his teachings, that itself will turn our mind back within. So, um, the effort is necessary. Definitely, we need to hold on to self-attentiveness, but we shouldn't be overdoing it. Sometimes people tell me that when they try to be self-attentive, they get headaches or they get uh, sensations in their body or um, they begin to have street strange experiences and things. That is because we're trying to force it. This is not a path of force. Bhagavan often used to... Uh, Give an analogy. The difference, one, one of one of the, I mean, there are many differences, but one of the differences between this path of self-investigation and most other spiritual practices, particularly yoga, is in yoga you're trying to force something. You're trying to force the mind to keep still. Bhagavan, uh, to, to illustrate this difference, he said, if a cow runs away from its shed and it goes roaming maybe on neighbors' fields or something, if you want to get it back to its shed, what is the most effective way? You can take a stick and try to chase the cow back, but what will be the effect? If you run after the cow, it will run in the opposite direction. If you try to get behind it to drive it towards the shed, it will run off to this side or that side. So however much you try and chase it, it will keep on evading you, slipping away. That is an impractical way. The practical way is to take an... Why the cow left its shed? Because it, it, the, the grass on the other side of the fence is always greener. It thought there's nice green grass there. So if it goes there, it'll have nice grass. So you, what you do, you choose a nice bunch of very lush green grass and you come and show it to the cow. And slowly, slowly, the cow will begin to follow you. You give a, a, a little bit, little bit to the cow, it tastes it, oh, this is very nice. And slowly, slowly, you, you, you lead it back. But you need to be very gentle and very uh, patient. If after some time you get impatient and you take, pick up the stick, the cow's going to run away. So we need to be very patient and persistent in this path. So Bhagavan said this path of self-investigation is a gentle path, whereas yoga and other paths, you're trying to force the mind to do something. In this, we're not trying to force. It is the key to success in this path is 
as Bhagavan often said, bhakti is the mother of jnana. That means love is the mother of jnana. So love is the key. So if when our mind's going out, why is that? Because we don't have sufficient love to turn within. So if we, we try to turn it within when it's still persisting and going outwards, then we think about Bhagavan's teaching. By thinking about Bhagavan's teaching, we rekindle the spark of love. And again, we try. So we need to be very wise and uh, gentle but persistent in the way we apply Bhagavan's teachings. Okay. Um, sometimes, you know, I've been doing this for about 11 years now. And yes. in a retreat, I, I don't know if I forced it or not. I just was following the retreat. And I came up to a place where I had very... I, it was very painful terror, which I think is, you know, a sensation in the body, but I didn't know that much about it at the time. I persisted because I didn't know what else to do. I wanted to follow through on the instructions of the retreat, and I ended up in a state of samadhi for several weeks, some kind of samadhi. This was um, maybe 12 years ago. So now, not that I want to duplicate anything at all. I just want to persist in, in his teachings. But I find that I come to this spot of this terror. It's so contracted. It's extremely painful that there's a kind of a, a lock there. I don't know how to describe it exactly. It's, once that occurs, it takes a while for, for it to subside. And it's very painful even to go towards yeah. Bhagavan's teachings. I find yeah. I just have to stop everything. Well, um, obviously a terror is a very powerful distraction so if you find if you if you know what is if you know that by trying to force things you bring on this terror yeah don't try to force it be more gentle okay i'm not saying don't persist you need to persevere but gently if that is treat the cow treat the mind like a runaway cow you don't want to you don't want to scare the cow by taking the stick. You want to gently, gently tempt the cow back into um, into its shed. So we need to be patient and persistent in this uh, practice. Another thing I was going to say when you started that is you said about uh, peace and silence, and uh, you also mentioned samadhi. Many people fail to understand what is meant by self-investigation. People think that uh, being in a, what they take to be a thought-free state is self-investigation. No, it is not. Bhagavan said, don't worry about thoughts. In, in Nana, he said, however many thoughts rise, what, so what? As and when each thought arises, investigate to whom does it rise. So, we are not trying to achieve uh, silence or peace or quiet or anything because if we are, if we take that as our aim, that can lead to man. That's what they're trying to do in yoga. Yoga in in the, the in uh, potentially begins his yoga sutra by defining what is yoga. Yoga's chitta vritti nirodaha. That means yoga is uh, stopping the mental activity or stopping or restraining the mental activity. And he says in the next verse, then one will uh, be in one's own swarupa, in one's own real nature. That is where Bhagavan disagrees. Bhagavan said, 
Firstly, stopping thought is not our aim. Every day when we fall asleep, we stop thoughts. But what do we achieve thereby? It's only a state of man or layer. Bhagavan used to tell another story to illustrate this. He said there was a, a yogi who lived on the banks of a Ganga who was very adept at yoga, pranayama, another uh, dharana, dhyana, all these, whatever they do in yoga, the eight limbs of yoga. He was very adept at this. Because he was so adept at this, he was often going into Kevala Nivikalpa Samadhi. Um, and because he was spending long hours in, in Samadhi, uh, he attracted a small following. So one disciple came and was serving him. So one day when the yogi woke up from his samadhi, he was feeling thirsty. So he asked the disciple to go and fetch water. And the river's very nearby because they're just on the banks of a Ganga. So the disciple went to fetch water. But by the time the disciple returned with the water, the yogi had gone back into uh, Nivikalpa Samadhi, Kevala Nivikalpa Samadhi. And that time, he was, was so deeply absorbed in that samadhi, he remained in that state for 300 years. People may ask, oh, how is it possible for 300 years he'd die? No, the yogis, if they, if, they, if they go into these sort of states, they can, the body, the, 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 everything slows down, the heart rate, the breathing, everything slows down. So because they're in a state of almost suspended animation, maybe one heartbeat a minute or something, the body is able to remain in that state for a very long period of time. Anyway, that's beside the point. The point of the story is he, he, he didn't wake up for 300 years. So when he woke up after 300 years, of course, the disciple had... Uh, passed away hundreds of years before. The Ganga had in the meanwhile changed course. The village, because the river had changed course, the village had also moved. And in the meanwhile, the Muslims had come and invaded India. It was a completely different time. 300 years is a huge amount, huge length of time in history. So many changes take place in 300 years. When he woke up after 300 years, what was his first... Uh, the first thing he did, he angrily asked, where's my water? Bhagavan said, what that shows is the last thought that was in his mind when he went into Nibhikalpa Samadhi was the first thought that arose in his mind when he woke up. That means not even the most superficial thought in the mind is destroyed even by staying 300 years in Nibhikalpa Samadhi. What to say of all the vasanas? In that is uh, what Bhagavan said, Kevala Nivikalpa Samadhi, the Samadhi that the yogis are trying to achieve, it is just a state of manolaya, like sleep. You do not destroy any vasanas in that state. So it is, it is useless. There's no harm in being in that state. It's very nice if you can remain for 300 years in that state. Very, very pleasant. But you, you're not making any spiritual progress. Our aim is not just to enjoy samadhi. Our aim is to annihilate ego. And we can annihilate. In order to annihilate ego, ego must be present to be annihilated. If, if, a, if um, some uh, criminal has absconded, uh, supposedly a mass murderer, he's absconded, but there can be a court 
uh, he can be tried in in absence in his absence, and the court can pass a verdict. He he is to be sentenced to death. But how can that sentence be carried out when the person who is to be sentenced to death is absent? In Manolea, ego is absent, so ego cannot be destroyed. It, and because ego is absent, it, Vasanas are also absent, so they cannot be weakened in any way. So it's only in the waking and dream state that we can we can work towards the annihilation of ego. We work towards the annihilation of ego by trying to hold on to self-attentiveness. So we shouldn't think that just... Many people say, oh, I meditated um, and for 20 minutes I didn't have any thoughts. Firstly, what they mean by thoughts generally is just mental chatter. So if the mind remains without chattering about this and that, they think they're remaining without thought. But that is not remaining without thought. But the very fact that I sat, sitting is a thought. Uh, I 20 minutes is a thought. I was without thoughts is a thought. The I that says I sat is itself a thought. It's the first thought, I, ego. So even if even if actually you go into layer, then it's a state really devoid of thought, but it's only a temporary state. You come out of it again. You're no better off than you were when you went in. So merely aiming for stillness of mind is not our aim. Our aim is to know who am I. To know who am I, we need to look within ourselves. Patanjali says, if you if you stop the mental activity, then you're in Swarupa. Bhagavan says, no, you're only in some in layer. It's not the it's not the the the, the it's just a temporary solution. Yes, you may be in Swarupa, but only on a temporary basis. But as soon as you wake up again, then you're back to where you where you were when you went into that state. So that's of no use. We are seeking the annihilation of ego because, according to Bhagavan, annihilation of ego alone is uh, is liberation. And how is ego annihilated? Ego is a false awareness. It's an awareness of ourself as I am this body. So, uh, <clears throat> since ego is a false awareness of ourself, how can it be destroyed? Only by correct awareness of ourself. In other words, by being aware of ourselves as we actually are, thereby ego is destroyed. And who is to, what we actually are is always aware of itself as it actually is. So it's not doing the self investigation, it's ego that needs to know itself as it actually is. What, it act, what we actually are is pure awareness. So ego knows, needs to know itself as pure awareness. But can ego know itself as pure awareness? No, because as soon as it needs to try to know itself as pure awareness by turning its attention within, but as soon as ego knows itself as pure awareness, it ceases to be ego and remains as pure awareness. So uh, we, uh, that effort to turn our attention within is necessary. Otherwise, we can lull ourselves into a nice, calm, peaceful state of mind but that's, that's, that's of no use. We need to be attending to ourselves. That is the key to success in this path. So the grasp or the cow is self-attentiveness, but if you're not doing self-inquiry, in other words, if I get to a point where I'm forcing it, yes. the grass would no, be... You, no, then you picked up the stick. If I, you, right, so then I would stop the, that. The, the, the grass is, is, yeah. is um, 
well, it's a bit difficult to, I think the point of that story is we need to, it, a gentle approach is necessary. We need to gently cajole the mind back into the heart. The nature of the mind is to be always going outwards. So we've got to slowly, slowly um, encourage the mind back within. So we, we, we read Bhagavan's teachings, we think about Bhagavan's teachings, we try to practice self-attentiveness, we hold on to it as much as possible, then again it slips out, we try to bring it back. Slowly, 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 but we have to be very patient and very gentle. We shouldn't um, get exasperated. Oh, my mind keeps on going outwards. doesn't matter how many times the mind goes outwards. We simply continue bringing it back within. It may seem sometimes that we're getting nowhere. But as Bhagavan said, every moment of self-attentiveness is, is very precious. It's, we are taking every, every moment of self-attentiveness is a big step in the right direction. So it doesn't matter how many times your attention goes outward, so long as you try to bring it back within, so long as you try at least for a few moments here, a few moments there, that is, we, we can't do more than we can do. We, if we try and force ourselves, it will inevitably be counterproductive. Take uh, Olympic runners, for example. They have to train very hard. But if they train too hard, what will happen? They'll pull a muscle, they'll become exhausted. So there needs to be an optimal level at which they train. If they train too little, they won't perform uh, at their optimum when it comes to the race. If they train too much, they won't perform at their optimum. So they have to be very uh, intelligent in how much to train and what type of, I mean, when to push for training a bit harder, when to be a bit more gentle. They, 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 they learn from experience. Sometimes they may push themselves too hard. Then they find, oh, that's counterproductive. Sometimes they may uh, be a little too um, not pushing themselves hard enough. That's also counterproductive. They've got to get it just to the optimum. Likewise, in this path, we've got to find the, um, the, the, the correct balance between trying to force it and, try, and, and not bothering even to try. We need to find the, the happy balance between the two. I'm driven by the apprehension now because I'm older now. So I'm driven by the yeah. apprehension of being reborn again. That that's a, do, a do driving not, that that's that's how the attention slips away from ourselves. Let it, let us yeah. be born another hundred million times. What does it matter? So long as we're following Bhagavan's path, that's all that matters. We're going in the right direction. We can't go faster than we can. A toddler can only toddle. Oh, uh, when he gets older, he'll be able to walk a little faster. Eventually, he may be an Olympic runner, but when he's a the Olympic runner, uh, Hussein Bolt, when he was a toddler, he, he couldn't do more than toddle. But because he toddled, and then once he toddled, he learned to walk a bit more steadily, then he learned to run, and he ran faster and faster and faster, and finally became Hussein Bolt. So, like that, we we... We can't push ourselves beyond, beyond our ability. We we have to uh, we have to try as much as we can without forcing it. And don't worry about. For us, death is a very big thing. For Bhagavan, death is a very small thing. Krishna says in Gita, it's just like um, when a shirt gets worn out, you take off the old shirt and you put on a new shirt. 
So birth and death are no big deal. We've been through crores and I mean, hundreds of millions of births and deaths. It's not a big deal. Because we are attached to this body, we are in the life of this body, I should attain it. Whether it's this body or some other body, what does it matter? What matters is that we go within. So we shouldn't think about how far is it? Is it far? Is it near? These are all thinking about things other than ourselves. The truth mm -hmm. is, it's here and now. It's ever shiny in our heart as I hold on to that which is ever present. That is what we seek to attain. So it's never actually far away. It's only in the mind's view, but it seems to be far away if we have to take 10 more births or whatever. Of course, once we've come to Bhagavan's path, we are, on, we are now on the, the highway. Um, and uh, the more we surrender ourselves to his grace, the faster our progress will be. But let's not worry about when it's going to happen or anything. Because the, the very idea of something happening in the future, we're taking it to be something other than ourselves. You are already that. Just be that here and now. Don't think about the next moment. Don't think about the past or future. Everyone says thinking about the past and future without knowing the truth of the present is like trying to count without knowing the value of the unit one. Okay, so drop entirely any thoughts about any other life or anything else. Drop all thoughts about everything. You should, the only thing you should think about is I. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, we've only got about 12 minutes more. There was one other thing I wanted to say. Um, uh, I, I see Ted isn't here today, but I hope he'll hear. Well, it's not only for Ted, it's for everyone. Um, there was a a video that Ted made, I think it was quite recently, with a, a lady from Czechoslovakia or somewhere. Um, for some reason, a number of people brought my that video to my attention because many people seem to have, have questions about whether she's explaining things correctly. So um, because I was asked some questions about that video, I now it is a, it's a few weeks since I listened to it, but I and I didn't listen to it fully. I listened to a little bit here and a little bit there, but a number of things she said. I but I felt oh she this isn't she hasn't correctly understood this. But there was uh, and I'm not saying this personally about her, but I'm just saying because the one thing she said, which is uh, which stuck in my mind, she said. For every thought, there is an I thought. Every thought produces its own I thought. That is a complete misunderstanding of what Bhagavan means by the term I thought. I thought means the ego, the subject. The, the, the thinker of all thoughts is the I thought. There is only one I thought. That is, if every thought had its own thought, there would be no, its own I thought, there would be no connection between one thought and the next. Uh, if, if it's one eye that thinks this thought and then it's another eye that thinks another thought, how many, there so many thoughts are constantly rising in our mind. How many eyes are there? There's only one eye. So um, when, we, when we come to Bhagavan's teachings, we need to think, we shouldn't just 
superficially t- uh, see a word I thought, oh, there's a, a thought called that, there's, a, there's an I thought, and take it to be some sort of thing, some object. We are so for the I thought, but that which it knows all other thoughts is the I thought. So is it a different one who knows this thought, who knows the next thought? No, obviously there'd be no continuity. It's one I thought, one ego, but that, that is, that's why Bhagavan says, for example, in verse 18 of Upadesha Undia, he says, Enangale manam, thoughts alone have a mind. Of all, meaning of all thoughts, the thought called I alone is the root. Therefore, what the mind essentially, well, he, he then ends saying, what is called the mind is, is uh, I. What he, what he means by that is, the term mind is a term that is used in a different sense in different contexts. So often we use the term mind to refer to the totality of all thoughts. So in that sense, all thoughts constitute the mind. But of all the thoughts in the mind, there is one thought that is constant throughout. That is the thought called I. That's why Bhagavan says it's the root. Why is it the root? Because all other thoughts exist in whose view? Only in the thought of, in the view of me, I, this I thought. So it's only in the view of the I thought that all other thoughts arise. So I thought is one. I is always one. I, there can never be more than one I. Even the I thought or ego, it's not that there are two eyes. There's a real eye and, the, and this false eye. No, there's only one eye. When the, when the one eye remains in its pure condition, devoid of adjuncts, that is our real nature. That is what we actually are. That is I am I. Uh, but when that, when that I is mixed and conflated with adjuncts, as I am Michael, or I am whoever, I am, in other words, I am this body, I am this person, that is ego. So it's not that there are two different eyes, it's there's one eye, with or without adjuncts. With adjuncts, it's called ego. Without adjuncts is what we actually are. So uh, I think many people have watched that video and um, as far as I'm aware, nobody seems to have uh, questioned this. How can there be many uh, uh, I thought? So in case anyone has listened to this and um, been confused by that, that is not what Bhagavan taught us. Bhagavan never said there are many I thoughts. There's only one I thought. That's why he said that the I thought is the root of all the thoughts that rise in the mind. The, the thought called I alone is the, is, is the first. So how many firsts can there be? There's only one first. So all other thoughts, the reason that the I thought is the root of all other thoughts is all other, all thoughts except the thought I are jada. They have no awareness of their own. If I think of something, if I think um, oh, it'd be nice to have a, um, a mango now, that, I've got a, that's a thought. Does that thought know itself? No, I know the thought. So all thoughts, are, it's I who am thinking the thought, I who am knowing the thought. So the only thought that has, is endowed with awareness is this first thought, I. All other thoughts are objects. I is the subject. So there's only one subject. There are many objects. So um, this is such an important 
point to understand. If we misunderstand this, if we think there are many I thoughts, then we completely misunderstand what Bhagavan is talking about. That's why when I heard that, I just wanted to, to say it in case anyone was uh, confused by this. There were other things she said, which I thought seemed to be seemed to me to be showing a, a confused understanding, but this was the most glaring error in what she said. And as I say, this is nothing personal against her. Um, I, I wish her all well, and I hope she uh, reads Bhagavan's teachings more carefully and comes to understand what is meant. We, we shouldn't hastily jump to conclusion. Bhagavan's teachings are very, very simple, but they're also very, very deep and subtle. So we need to think very carefully about it, and we need to we need to make sense of it. We we need to understand what he's saying and why he says like this in this place and like that in that space. We need to get a coherent understanding. All the all the various threads of his teaching need to hold together as one coherent uh, whole. So that is why it is said. Sravana is only the beginning. Hearing the teachings or reading the teachings is just the beginning. Then we need to do manana. We need to think deeply about it. And most of the important of all, we need to apply it in practice. If we begin to apply it in practice, it's very clear there's only one eye. If there's many things, many means it's objects. So anything that is many has to be objects because there's only one eye. So so long as we think there are many I thoughts, then we are completely on the wrong track. So I don't know, we, we're nearing the end. I don't know if anyone has any other questions. Well, it's kind of a, uh, as a sidebar to what you just mentioned, yes. uh, that woman's going to join us in mid-September. <laughs> okay, well, if she, if she like to... I, think I mean, it, you sure. can, I, I don't mind if you if you refer her when when I post this video, if you refer her to that, because I'd be very happy to discuss this with her, because this is such an important point. Oh, we, I'm, I, yeah, I only mentioned that. So if, if people who haven't seen that video, I, I've watched it and, uh, uh, you know, I'm not in any place to comment on anybody's perception yeah. other than. You know, Michael, if you say it's true, then I I kind of take you at your word well, for it. I well, don't really question that. But well, you, you can work it out for yourself. How many eyes are you? Oh no, I don't have any question with what you said. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I, I I don't have any question yeah. about that. It, it's uh, uh, it, it was just interesting the dynamics that happened between Ted and uh, uh, I keep wanting to call her Yana, but that's not her name. But it's she's from Prague. Yes, and she's actually head of the Prague Ramana Foundation. Okay. So, uh, but anyhow, with uh, with that in mind, I you yeah. know thank you very much. Yeah. For what you're doing today, and one of these days, maybe we'll get to. I forget if we're on verse eighteen or nineteen. Seventeen, I think, is the next. Seventeen. Uh, that's what my book. Anyway, I think today we've actually we clarified many things. Um, we did. Yeah. It, it, it's important to, to to we need a strong foundation. If we're to follow Bhagavan's path, we need a strong foundation. So we need to clearly understand what it is Bhagavan is talking about, what it is Bhagavan is asking us to do. Well, maybe I should ask you this too. Uh, Arthur Osborne wrote several books about Ramana. And 
in fact, one of his books was the first book uh, that this was uh, the Collected Works. Yes, and uh, I, I I bought that book almost by accident, and then once I started to read it, I just couldn't read it because it threatened me too much with my own idea of some kind of spirituality, and I couldn't even read it for like ten years. But I, I was thinking the way you've talked about the different translations that people make, and no one before you and Sadhu Om really took a literal look at the in, at the translations and how they took place. Do you have any thoughts on his translations of what he's written? Well, Arthur Osborne didn't translate anything. He didn't. He did. I think he knew a little Tamil, but he couldn't. He didn't know literary Tamil. Okay. Um, so he simply edited. He took existing translations and made them into a book. Um, he didn't even know the order. That, that is, there's a collected works of Bhagavan in Tamil, and the, the works are arranged in a particular order for a particular purpose. He didn't know that order. So the work that comes right at the end in Tamil, he put right at the beginning, that is Vichara Sangraham which in, in his, the translation he put is called self-inquiry. That is not actually a good work to start with because though there are some very nice teachings of Bhagavan there, a lot of that is not Bhagavan's teachings because um, how that work came into existence, uh, a person called Gambiram Seishya had been reading books, mostly in English, on Vedanta. A lot of the books he had read were Vivekananda's books, Raja Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, and other books were written by Vivekananda, and various other books he'd read in English. He had difficulty understanding a lot of what he read in those books. So he came to Bhagavan and asked Bhagavan to explain. So Bhagavan uh, paraphrased what was in those books in very simple Tamil to help him to understand. So about probably about 80% of that book is not actually Bhagavan's teachings. It is Bhagavan's paraphrases of, um, of uh, what Vivekananda and others had uh, written in English books mm -hmm. on Vedanta and yoga and so on. Um, so only about they, what the 20% but the actual teachings of Bhagavan there are very useful. But most of it is not useful. So to put that as the first work is actually not a, it's, why didn't he put who am I first? Who am I is the pure teachings of Bhagavan. If he put that first, that would have been far more appropriate. But as I say, actually in Tamil, wow. in the Tamil book, first comes Aranachas Sutipanchakam, then comes Bhagavan Upadesha verses, then comes the translated verses, then comes the translated prose, and finally comes uh, this um, uh, Aromori Tohupu, the, the words of grace, which is Who Am I, Vichara Sangram, and Upadesha Manjari. That's the order it's given in Tamil. Michael, okay. so, yeah. sorry. Go ahead, Rani. Uh, when I was young, I used to read a book. You know, before the mountain yeah. path, there were yes. books called Does Spoke Ramana. Yes, yes. 
I remember. Where they combined into something and it's available or because there was they were really nice because it's between a devotee and Ramana and the dialogue between them. I I think there was a series of uh, I think someone like Bharati Bharatiya Vidya Bhavan or someone brought out a series of books, thus spake books. Um, thus spake the Buddha, thus spake Krishna, thus spake um, di different uh, books like that. So there was one also brought out, thus spake Ramana. Um, it is simply a compilation from talks and day by day and uh, Maharshi's gospel in various places. It was a compilation in a small booklet. So there, there was nothing original there, but it's not in other books. But I haven't seen that book for years. I remember when I came to uh, Ramanashram in the 1970s, that book was still available, but I haven't seen it for many, many years. So I, it may be out of print. You know, the thing I liked about them is that, you know, it's question and then answer, question yeah. and answer, yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of digging deep into the issue yeah. at hand. So. Yes, yes. Okay, well then I guess we'll wrap it up here. Should I just say week? one more thing, uh, Marty, because you mentioned Arthur Osborne. Uh, Arthur Osborne, there's one major misunderstanding Arthur Osborne had. He thought self-investigation in, self or self-inquiry, as he called it, means meditating two digits to the right from the center of the chest, which is not at all what Bhagavan taught. No. And in fact, when Bhagavan was asked, in, there's somewhere in talks where someone asks, should I meditate on the right-hand side of the chest? Bhagavan said, meditation should not be on the right or on the left. Meditation should be on I am. Everyone knows I am. That's all. Just hold on to that I am. <laughs>